This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hi there. I'm Katie Milkman, a professor at the Wharton School and the co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, or BCFG for short. I'm excited to introduce you to the Authors at BCFG interview series. This is a new interview series with academics who have recently written books about behavioral science for a popular audience. In the interview you're about to hear, we welcome Professor Jay Van Bavel of New York University as our first guest in the Authors at BCFG series. With fellow psychologist Dominic Packer, Jay co-authored a fantastic new book called The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. In the conversation you're about to hear, I'll talk with Jay about why he and Dominic wrote this book, why chit-chat at meetings is critical to social cohesion and performance, and ideas from social science for how to tackle some of the challenges we face as a society with increasing polarization. And that's far from all. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. I certainly did. I am um, so excited that we get to do this. And I should say, I have your amazing book up on my bookshelf. It was such a fun read. Um, I am going to start with a softball question, uh, which is telling us why you wrote this book. And and then I'll throw some harder ones at you. But why did you do it? It's great. Yeah, I I think I, you know, I never had aspirations to write a book. So I, I don't think that was the reason. The real reason is, I stumbled into this conversation with Dominic once. I was visiting him and and we were friends from graduate school and we did our postdocs together as well. And, uh, you know, moved and became professors at the same time and parents at the same time. And I was visiting him and he was talking about a book club he was part of and some book they had read in his local community or neighborhood book club. And he, it was a social science book and he said it was really good, but it didn't really like flow together very well. And I was started defending the author. I said, at least they wrote a book, you know, it's so hard to do and very impressive. And he said, you could write a book. And I was kind of startled. And I said, what would I write a book about? And he said about your research about identity and groups. And that got me thinking about it on my ride home. And I started like mentally that draw on my drive that night, like thinking what all the chapters would be. And I emailed him when I got home and I said, let's do this. And, uh, you know, since that time, that was like five or six years ago. Um, it feels like identity has become such a major issue around so many topics in society, uh, around politics and race and nationality. And so uh, during the time we've been writing it, I I think my goal and our goal collectively is to try to help people understand how groups are operating. It feels like there's a huge desire to understand how they operate in the real world, but also at work. And uh, to give people the tools uh, to make smarter groups and more inclusive groups. So that's fundamentally the the mission we have behind our book. That was a wonderful explanation of why you wrote this book. I would love it actually if you would tell everyone um, the story, the hilarious story, I should say, of how you and your co-author Dominic became fast friends and also what you think that story actually teaches us about identity. I think it's a great anecdote. Okay, great. So this is the preface of our book. So if anybody who's kind of started reading it, this is like the first 10 pages. Um, It's kind of the origin story, which people love the origin stories about how, you know, individuals got into, you know, certain types of research. Our origin story, which is uh, about us, how we formed a collaboration, and our book is fundamentally about collaboration. So originally, Dominic was a year ahead of me, and he had started his PhD the prior year to me at the University of Toronto. And when I came to the university, I had to pick an office. 
And he was in this really nice office. Admittedly, it was kind of in the sub-basement, which is the basement below the basement, and had three desks, that, and two of which were open. So I immediately grabbed one of those desks and started moving in. Uh, the very next day, I brought my hockey equipment. So I was a hockey player. This was in Canada. I had a huge bag of goalie equipment, and I brought it in and said, I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to like store this here. I have such a tiny apartment. There's no room for it. And he looked at me with, you know, complete disdain, but he didn't say anything. He's like this polite kind of like traditional English upbringing. And uh, it turns out that he really despised me for about six months. I don't think he turned around in his chair to talk to me. And uh, it wasn't until like a few months after that, that we were like having a wine and cheese colloquium after this, you know, guest speaker had come to university and we're talking about ideas with some other students. And, you know, I was a poor graduate student. So I was like eating as much of the, the hors d'oeuvres as I could. And I think I had like a free glass of beer. So I was really like appreciating. I felt like this was like a very high quality of life for me to like get all this free stuff. And I was talking and drinking and eating and it wasn't a good combination. And they had these cheese cubes about the size of a die or dice. And I had a few of those and then one got stuck in my throat and I knew I was, was choking. And so my instinct, and if anybody's on this call has ever choked, your instinct is to go somewhere private because it's pretty humiliating and you don't want to be publicly embarrassed. Um, but I, you know, growing up, I had worked in the oil fields of Alberta and I watched, you know, dozens of safety videos. And one of them, I remembered it like came back to my brain, like instantly is that the one thing you learn about choking is never leave the room because that's how you'll die. Turns out that there's almost always somebody in a room who can save your life with the Heimlich. Um, but our social instincts are to avoid humiliation. It's kind of one of the reasons people hate public speaking. You know, some people fear it more than death because they're worried about humiliating himself in front of a bunch of uh, peers. And so I stuck in the room. I, I kind of stumbled behind the bar and the bartender, like I eventually communicated to him that I was choking and he tried to help me, but it didn't fully work. And so I grabbed Dominic's hand to help me. And I couldn't even really talk at that point because, you know, all the oxygen was cut off to my brain. And I pulled him to the men's room across the hall from the reception. And he was kind of horrified. He didn't know what to do. He didn't really realize I was even choking at first. Um, but eventually I kind of like turned him around and put his arms, you know, his hands on my stomach and started pushing. And eventually he realized what to do. And the cheese came out. And meanwhile, like we, we were like young students. We were kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, the pecking order. And there's professors coming in and out and like looking at us, like, what are you guys doing in here? This is pretty weird. Um, and so he saved me. And I remember after, after he saved me, I laughed. I thought this was like the most hilarious thing. I just like my career almost ended by choking to death at a wine and cheese. And Dominic uh, was horrified. Like he looked like he had seen a ghost. He wanted to go home. He was upset. And I was like, no, let's go back in. There's still, you know, food to be had. And, um, and it turns out that was the moment where our relationship kind of changed. Um, we had this weird bond with each other. And from that point forward, when I'd be in the office and I'd share an idea with our other office mate, Dominic would slowly start turning around, engaging. And before long, we realized we had a lot of interests and we've been, you know, collaborating. I think that's 18 years ago, this happened. So for 18 years, we've been, you know, we've moved to the same places, uh, became great friends, um, and now wrote a book together. And so it's one of these things that people can forge bonds over all kinds of experiences. And, you know, in some tribal communities, this is what they do. They actively have people go through like these like really stressful, intense rituals um, to become members of, you know, full-fledged members of the community. And so we kind of accidentally did this, but it was one of those things that bonded us together. I love that story and it's such a perfect opening because as you said, it illustrates one of the ways that groups start to identify as groups. Um, 
You talk in the book both about how identity can help us become better people and how it can lead us to turn against one another. And I wanted to ask you to sort of actually dig into both, but can we start first on the on the positive by talking a little bit about when identity can be helpful and why? Yeah, so groups get, I think, get a very bad rap. It turns out that they're, you know, part of our evolutionary uh, DNA essentially is that we evolved in small groups and humans aren't very particularly strong or fast. We're not poisonous, we can't fly. Our evolutionary advantage is we can cooperate unlike almost any other species on earth and communicate with each other. And so we can build amazing innovations, out compete you know, other species. And this has allowed us to spread around the world. And our main fear, as I mentioned before with the public speaking example is getting socially ostracized because our ancestors who did that died. They didn't live a very long life. And so our instinct is fundamentally to connect with other people. A lot of us have just become acutely aware of this during the pandemic as we've all been forced uh, to stay home. And so what that means is that, you know, we had this instinct for pro-sociality and connection. And, you know, you can look around the world and it's unlike anything our ancestors would have experienced in part because we cooperated and, our, and you know, earlier you know, our ancestors did and built all this, including the internet we're using, the computers, the, our ability to do all the things that we do in our daily life is something that was completely uh, unknown to humans up until, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And so this is fundamentally what the value of, of uh, social connection is. Um, and there's lots of research showing that people who are identified with groups, um, it can do all kinds of good things. It can not only allow us to innovate, create, solve complex problems, um, but it also turns out it's really good for our physical and mental health. People who are part of communities um, have all these better indices on all kinds of measures of their health. Um, this is what's often referred to as the social care. Um, it can also help us achieve our goals. I mean, one of the things I loved about your book was a lot of the things came down to identity, like resetting at certain dates allows us to build new identities. Or another example I liked of, uh, you had was your no group of women in academia, academia who came together to help support each other to say no to the wrong things so they could focus and be successful. And, uh, you know, or go back to Dominic's book club, which was the, the launch of this whole thing for us, which is you join a book club or the book club that we're starting right here uh, today, I guess is the first time you have an author on. Um, that is a commitment device that is social, but gets you to do something that's often aspirational, which is we want almost everybody wants to read more, especially things that are gonna make them smarter or better uh, and solve the problems they care about. And that social commitment you have and support that you get from people in your book club uh, helps you do that. And so these are just some of the, you know, little things that matter with groups that can enrich our life in all kinds of ways. Okay. I love starting with the upside because there is so much positivity and potential in groups. But of course, I have to turn us to the ugly underbelly, right? That identity groups can turn us against each other, become harmful, and it's particularly salient in this moment of polarization. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about um, what science suggests we can do to try to combat that and, and prevent groups from creating harmful rifts? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's how most of us think about groups now. And you see this term in the, in the media a lot about tribalism. Um, one of the things we wanna do is challenge that idea in our book, because certainly that's a potential for humans. We have a long history of intergroup conflict. You can look through you know, uh, archeological and anthropological records. You can look in every culture on earth and you can see evidence of groupishness and a lot of times group conflict that can be really dangerous. Um, what we try to communicate, however, is that doesn't need to be the case. And so one of the big things we're trying to get across to people is that the more you identify with a group, 
doesn't necessarily make you discriminatory or exclusionary or um, conformist, you know, in a way that leads to things like groupthink. It can do all those things. Um, but what we talk about is the critical role of the norms of the group you identify with. So I'll give you three examples here and how that's powerful. Um, the first one, just to kind of prime people's intuitions about this power, is if you're an American on this call, and admittedly I'm not, but I know I'm in New York, a very individualistic culture. And so America is known for pursuing your individual goals. A lot about individual freedom is part of the rhetoric, and many of us identify that way. And it, research uh, by Yolanda Yetten and her colleagues finds that that's actually a form of conformity in itself. So the more you identify as American, the more you see yourself as an individualist. And so it's that identity when you come over, including if you're an immigrant to the country, the more you kind of uh, acculturate and become identified with America, the more like you are to embrace that value of individualism. Um, you can also use it to become more inclusive and embrace difference. And so it turns out there's great research showing that if you uh, join a group where the norms are uh, you know, embracing difference or uh, valuing diversity, the more you identify with that group, the more you become inclusive and the less you discriminate. And, and I'll just give you some examples of that. So if you think of like a, a group like Doctors Without Borders, if you join that group and you start to buy into the norms and value system, the more you're willing to like put your own life at risk and incur costs to go to other countries to help people who are incredibly different with, from you or the Red Cross is another example. And so there's lots of examples of that. And so what one thing that I wanna drive home and, and as a key part of our book is that um, leaders have a key role in creating those norms and so do individuals because even if leaders have like a vision statement on their website about what their company or their group stands for, people often look to those around them to determine what the norms are. And if they're in contrast with the vision statement or explicit values of, of the corporation, people will follow those social norms around them. And so this is where we exert a lot of power, whether we're a leader through our rhetoric and our example, or um, rewarding people who do these things that we actually say we value, or whether we look to our peers who have an office next to ours and, and see what they're doing. Those norms can guide us in, in really good ways or, or bad ways. And so that's why we think that like identity is, is part of it, but you have to fully understand how identity operates. And that's often through, um, when you identify the groups, it's the norms of the group that really seem to drive behavior. I love that point. And actually it gives me an opportunity to ask you about one of the parts of the book I found particularly fascinating. And I bet many people who are tuning in will find this interesting too, because I think a lot of people here uh, know at least a little bit about um, social psychology. So you talk about the fam famous Stanford prison experiment and unpack some important misconceptions um, of that work that you helped identify. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how it ties to the key message of your book. Yeah, so 50 years ago, this year, I believe, um, was in the basement of the Stanford psychology department, Phil Zimbardo and his colleagues were running probably maybe the most famous experiment in the history of social psychology, or maybe even psychology. It's in every textbook. And what happened is they brought these uh, young men in, they flipped a coin and made them prisoners or uh, guards. And within days, they found out that the guards were abusing and mistreating the prisoners and harassing them, locking them into this room, making them do demeaning exercises. And in fact, it got so toxic and cruel that they had to shut down the study in advance. And the main message from that, that's been pushed you know, from the very beginning of that work for the last 50 years is that if you just join a, a role, so the moment you put on that, like if you're randomly assigned to put on like that prison guard uh, uniform and they had like these like uh, reflective, like aviator glasses, um, that moment 
that norm and that role triggers you to be abusive and cruel. And so our behavior is powerfully determined by our roles in ways that we can't control. Um, well, it turns out that there was a major revelation a couple years ago, uh, to his credit, Phil Zimbardo and his colleagues uh, put a bunch of evidence from what happened in that study at the Stanford Library. And people started digging into that evidence, uh, scholars and, and academics, and they found some missing pieces of evidence, including a recording uh, of one of the superintendents of the prison uh, talking to one of the guards. And what it revealed is that the guard did not want to engage in cruelty, but was getting enormous amounts of pressure from the leadership of the study. And there was two key lessons here. One is that the leadership seems to be really instrumental in creating cruelty. So it's not just that we automatically become cruel when we're in a role, it's that the messages and signals and norms that leaders are communicating are critical. Um, the other thing about that, that recording was fascinating is that the way that that leader was doing it, the superintendent, was framing this cruelty as serving a higher purpose. And so it was all like, we, we need you to work with us because we want to reform prisons. We all value that goal. And so we need you to be really aggressive in your treatment of the guards so we can like send this out into the press and have them like send this message to create prison reform. And so the guard who was like super resistant to this authority, the whole time he was resisting, which was also really incredible, is that people just don't go along with leadership. You know, half the time they will resist it if they think it's going wrong. But the way leaders often get them on board is communicating to them that it's part of a higher purpose. And at that point, people, the ends justify the means. And so that's a really critical thing to know if you're thinking about building an organization that is, you know, getting away from like toxic types of norms. A lot of times people are doing toxic behavior. It's not just purely self-interested. In fact, a lot of times, if you look around the world and throughout history, it's because people doing it think it's in the service of a higher purpose and they're doing it to benefit the group. I loved uh, that portion of the book. So much is wonderful in the book. I, I know lots of folks um, here have already read it, but for anyone who hasn't, highly recommend it. I'm going to turn now from my questions. We didn't get through all of them because I have so many, but it's, it's time for me to be selfless and, and do something for the group and the greater good. Um, and I'm going to turn some of the questions that are coming in. And I'll also just remind everyone, if you have questions, enter them in the Q&A and we will try our best to get to them. I'm gonna start with a really interesting question from Tara Hoffman. So Tara wants to know if you're aware of identity development work in children that links to your work or research and specifically she's interested in um, what gems educators could potentially take away from your work or from this research stream. That's a great question. Uh, so there's a couple things. So I have done some work with kids, uh, including at the New York Children's Museum. Uh, we've done some work in schools, looking at how this was at least with that was with high schoolers looking at how they all get on the same wavelength in schools. So maybe I'll share that study first. It was really cool. We went into this uh, biology class for an entire semester every week, and the teacher in the class actually had a PhD in, in biology, and so they were very interested in working with scientists. And uh, what happened is we put EEG caps on them, so we were measuring the brain activity of everybody in the classroom every week for an entire semester. And we found that when the teacher was engaging in, we had the teacher do, you know lecturing, watching movies, class discussion, um, reading silently. And we found when there was like class discussion or when the teacher was lecturing and otherwise when it was social, we found that everybody in the class started to get on the same wavelength, which we could literally measure because we were measuring their brain activity. Um, and that was associated with like deeper performance and engagement and happiness. And so things that get people engaged are often like those social things that send social messages and allow them to be included. Um, the other thing that we found was that was really cool was if you had a, even a brief social contact with somebody at the start of class. So for example, Katie, if like going into before a meeting, if you and I just like 
touch base for a minute about like how our weekend was, we were more likely to be on the same wavelength for the rest of the class. And so like these, a lot of the lessons we got from this were about social connection. And, and admittedly, this is obviously really hard during a pandemic. I mean, my kids are just now going back to school. Um, but it's those, even those little connectors are things that get us on the same wavelength and increase our engagement and, and uh, academic performance. So that I think is maybe one of the biggest things I found that's the most useful. So find ways to do that, enhance social connection, allow people to connect with each other even before the lesson starts, turns out to have uh, measurable changes in how their brain is responding during the actual lesson. It's so interesting and such a great lesson also for all leaders, right? That 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 chit chat at the beginning that you're sort of trying to push past to get to your agenda actually has a really important function. Um, okay, and another question from um, Marissa Barbara. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Marissa says that diversity is very, very welcome in many parts of our lives. And uh, she wants advice on how to build group identity in a diverse group and how we can build identity, particularly when there are uh, polarized subgroups already. Yeah. So I will say, I mean, I could speak on this for an hour, but I'll try to give you a couple of key studies that I, I think are really important. First of all, most of us are now aware that diverse groups often can outperform other groups because they have different perspectives and it avoids things like groupthink. And often it allows us to have like blind spots that are otherwise saved by having diverse perspectives in the room. So those things are really critical. Um, one of my favorite studies on this, however, found that that's only true of diverse groups who felt a shared sense of purpose or identity. And, and most of us, if we've been on a diverse group and those people don't get along and they're not feel like, don't feel like they're working for something uh, together at a higher purpose, they don't perform better. And so you really need, that's why a lot of DNI efforts include the D, the diversity and the inclusion piece. If you don't have the inclusion piece, you don't really harness the benefits of diversity. Um, and then another piece, and this is important as, as you know, schools and workforces are diversifying universities, um, is that when we're talking, when I'm talking about having a higher order identity. So for me, let's say that's at NYU, I'm trying to get my colleagues on board to something and I try to frame it as we're gonna you know, situate ourselves relative to other departments or the universities in a way that's gonna make us better. Um, it's also important not to quash or suppress the lower order identities that people have when they come to work. And so research, for example, on uh, prejudice reduction strategies finds that those are most effective if people feel a common sense of identity at a higher level, but also feel like they can express their personal or minority identities. If not, what you often have is a majority group that is imposing its identity on minority group members. And so you have to be careful not to do that if you're creating a superordinate identity or you won't get buy-in and, and you can obviously like, you'll lose people. They won't stick around in that type of environment if they don't feel like they're valued. So those are a couple things. And then a third thing I'll say again, going to norms. Um, this is one of my favorite studies on this. It was a study at Google where they looked at what made the most effective teams. They looked at over 200 teams and, they, and you know, Google's famous for crunching numbers and like analyzing data. And they found almost no pattern in the data whatsoever that predicted what teams succeed. You know, personality characteristics weren't really predicting it. Leadership style, hierarchical or vertical or horizontal didn't predict it. Um, whether you're, you're not, you go for drinks after like your good friends or not didn't predict it. The one thing they found that predicted team success that made teams greater than the sum of their parts was psychological safety, which a lot of people don't understand what that term means, but that term means that you get to share a perspective that might be different, challenge the status quo, constructively criticize a friend or a colleague, and you're invited back to the group the next day. In other words, you're intrinsically valued. You're not walking on eggshells. You're not biting your tongue. 
And so those are, are groups where performance excels and they perform greater than the sum of their parts. So that's another piece of diversity is creating that sense of safety so that everybody feels like they have a voice. That's a great lesson. All right, here's a somewhat related but slightly different question. Um, Sushma is asking, when you have an in-group, you automatically create an out-group. And so the question is, are there good ways to limit animosity towards out-groups while still preserving the benefits of in-groups? Yeah, so this is often what you see when you look out at the world and you see like intractable conflict in parts of the world or in this country, any country you live in, you can find examples. So one of the ways that we study this in the lab dates back 50 years is we create minimal groups. We flip a coin and create two teams in the lab. And I've done this with many, many studies at four universities now, mm -hmm. multiple countries. Mm -hmm. And what you find is that when you create a new team, they don't necessarily dislike outgroup members. The first kind of like instinct when people join a group is just to look for and, and embrace and engage with in-group members. Um, this can lead to discrimination, of course, right? Because you can give more resources to in-group members and out-group members, um, but it doesn't necessarily come with out-group derogation, which is what we're often more worried about. Um, however, the second piece of it is once you create that group, you wanna be sure that you find ways to create, if, you're, if you don't wanna have discrimination, is create uh, goals or rewards that are structured on cooperation without groups. And I'll, I'll, again, I'll give an example from organizations is you sometimes get like teams or groups that are competing with each other for resources or for status or for you know pride or whatever um, for the boss's approval. And if they're doing that, they won't cooperate. They will sabotage each other. And this was uh, work led by Mina Chikara, who's a collaborator of mine. She's at Harvard. Um, we ran these studies and we found over and over again, once people create groups and once they're competing with another group, that's when you get like a lack of empathy towards the outgroup. But we found two things got rid of it. One is that if you get them cooperating and working together towards a higher order goal, you immediately feel empathy towards outgroup members who normally you'd be opposed to and lacking empathy. And then the other thing that we found got rid of it is uh, communicating to people that the social networks that people had were actually interconnected and embedded. A lot of people assumed that the social networks of the two groups were not overlapping. They assume that, oh, everybody's friends in this group and no one has friends in the other group. But if you show them evidence that that's not true, they shift how they think about the other group. They suddenly realize, oh, I can connect with them too and value them because other people on my group do, in my team do. So those are at least two potential solutions to that. Really interesting. Okay, we have a most popular question. Uh, that is, seems like a hard one, but I'm going to ask it because so many people want me to. <laughs> um, this is from Jamie asking about COVID and our experience with COVID. So uh, the question is, considering the extreme experience we've all just been through and the deep divides that are also arising, it's a prediction question. Do you predict that COVID will become a bonding historic event or a divisive one when, when historians look back and, and think about this moment in time? And why? Yeah, I, I predict... Um, well, what's, what you've seen has happened around the world is that in some countries, in the U.S. in particular, it's become divided, it's become polarized. Pretty much every stage of the pandemic from January 2020 to now, there's polarization in perceived risk was the first issue um, politically. And then it was um, distancing. And I've studied this in my own lab. We analyzed, you know, millions of 50 million people moving around the country. We, we were able to track their movement and found that that was one of the biggest predictors in our whole study was, were you from a red county or a blue county predicted social distancing, um, you know, then it was with masks, now it's with vaccines. Um, so that's been divisive, but I'll give you a counter example. It didn't have to be that way. So in Canada, 
where I'm from. You know, Canada is different than the U.S. in a lot of ways, but it's right across the border. It's very similar. And they have political polarization, too. They have the two dominant parties are liberal and conservative. And uh, there was a really cool paper analyzing the rhetoric of leaders from both parties at the start of the pandemic on like social media. And everybody took it seriously, no matter what your political leaning was uh, from politicians from both parties. And what they found was that when they looked at surveys of all Canadians, it didn't matter what party you had, everybody took it seriously. And so what the messaging was, uh, was non-polarized when it came from leaders. And so that led people who identify with those groups to both take it seriously. And there was a really cool analysis from Penn actually, from the medical school, suggesting that if the US had taken had handled the pandemic just as well as Canada had, it would have saved, I think it was like 100,000 lives. And that was like from a year ago, at this point it might've saved 300,000 lives. And so th there was a potential for reducing polarization, but the messaging here is that it takes leadership. And maybe my favorite person on this is uh, the new, uh, new Zealand prime minister, Jacinda Ardern. At the beginning of the pandemic, she framed up the issue as a national crisis and she tried to bring people together. She famously referred to New Zealanders or as her team of 5 million. Uh, there's a famous uh, moment where, and this is key to good leadership too, is you know when they were reopening everything after they kind of uh, suppressed the pandemic, she wanted to go out for brunch. You know, it was kind of like a photo op opportunity to show that everything's safe again. And they had distanced all the tables at the place she was gonna go for brunch. And there wasn't room for her without violating the new distancing guidelines. And so what, can you imagine what most leaders would do? Most, most prime ministers or presidents would be like, their handlers would be like, make a table for them. We're here, we're gonna get a picture of this. This is critical for PR. Um, she left because she wanted to follow the own rules that she had set. And so it's, and then eventually someone left and then they grabbed her and brought her back. Um, but the point is that leaders also have to live up to the rules that they set for people because you're not gonna get buy-in from people if they think that leaders are playing by a different set of rules. And this has happened in many states and countries where leaders set these rules and you find out they're at like a really fancy dinner where they've told everybody else they're not supposed to go for dinners. So you have to have uh, not only the rhetoric, but then their behavior has to match it. Awesome. I really love that um, particular example you held up and it's so clear how differently this has been handled by different leaders. We have two questions that are related uh, and they both have to do with dealing with resolving conflict when there's multiple identities involved. So uh, curious about what you think people can do when they have multiple overlapping identities and um, they need to navigate those. If you have any advice uh, for how people can sort of switch from one role to the next or, uh, or how leaders can manage it when their employees or the people they're coaching or mentoring have multiple identities that come into conflict when trying to decide on how to move forward. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say this is one of the core themes of our book, which is that we, we borrow the quote from uh, the poet Walt Whitman, that we contain multitudes. All of us have multiple identities. Those identities are often in conflict. So I'll just use myself. Like I'm at work right now. I'm probably operating from the identity of a professor or maybe my new identity as an author, which is brand new. And, and it, you could treat it differently. And all of a sudden you're like in these in-groups of all these authors who are very supportive, which is really cool. But the moment I like go home tonight and I'm with my kids, the moment I walk in that door, pick them up from, from school, um, they don't care how many books I sold or what papers I published or anything. All they really care about is like, what's for dinner, dad? Um, what are we gonna do tonight? Can you help me with my homework? Um, and are we gonna like do something fun this weekend? And so your identity shifts really dramatically in the moment and you're in that new situation. And situations are one of the powerful ways identities shift. Um, and then the other thing is, now that a lot of people are working from home, um, 
all our identities are kind of on screen, you know, right now you can, I can see into Katie's like living room. Like I have access to you in a personal way that I never would have had before. Um, like I had this story of um, how I got stuck kind of bringing my kids home from school during the pandemic. And we were coming up in the elevator. I was racing to teach my class from my kitchen table, which is where I was teaching uh, a class of 300 people. And the elevator got stuck. <laughs> um, and we were trapped in the elevator and it was the class before the midterms. And I knew my, my poor students would be stressed and anxious about it. They're already stressed enough with the pandemic. And I called in and taught the class to myself. And my poor kids were like stuck there watching me while we're trapped in an elevator waiting for the repair person to come. And that was like, you're trying to keep these identities separate. And sometimes through circumstances that we can't control, they, they come into conflict. And this happens with a lot of like working parents and all kinds of people. Um, a challenge often with minority uh, individuals is code switching, that they feel like they have to live up to norms that don't match their ethnic or religious identity at work. And it's really stressful and challenging. And so I think one of the things to just understand from the get-go and probably give way more support for and latitude now than maybe you have in the past, and, and hopefully this will become more normal, is signaling to people that you support these different identities. Uh, it's really important when leaders do that, when they signal it. And I will say this other weird thing, I was just walking up into work this morning and I ran into one of my students from that class and I haven't seen any of those students, right? Because it was taught all virtual. He said, Dr. Van Babel, and he, I said, hi, and he introduced himself and he said he was in that class. And he reminded me it was like the class that I was stuck in the elevator. And he thought it was such a cool story and so funny. And I thought at the time it was really embarrassing and unprofessional and stressful. Um, but what it did is also it kind of like connected me to students. I got the best ratings, I think, of every time, anytime I've ever taught that course, because everybody was going through stressful stuff that semester. And normally professors are at a distance from their students. And it made us human in a way that we probably weren't to them and also helped us kind of resonate with what they were going through and the stressors in their personal lives as they were struggling to do this all online without their friends and stuff. Um, and so I think that that's something that's really important is communicating that we're all human, we all have multiple identities and that's okay. And in fact, that's part of, of who we all are and we should just uh, try to figure out a better way of embracing it. As long as you get the work done and you know, it's sometimes better if you can be more open about those different identities you have. I love that you found a way to weave that elevator story in <laughs> because that is, by the way, I'm going to ask our team if someone could put a link to the tweet <laughs> at the beginning of that thread. I think it was one of the most viral tweets in our field last year and it deserved it. That was an amazing story. And I loved also that you said recently you found out it had been actually used as an example of good writing on Twitter and a textbook. <laughs> it was great. I, this English professor from Stanford, like the director of the writing program, put it in a book on like good writing, just like you can do good writing on social media. I've never seen that in English textbook in my life. This will be the only time anybody says I'm a good writer for something. And I'm like, I, I'm, I'm taking that win. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. I loved it. And it, it really was. I remember being riveted as I scrolled through that tweet stream as it was happening. And I've never been stuck in an elevator to teach, but I still somehow, you know, I felt connected and bonded with just imagining it. Um, okay, I think we have time maybe for one last question, which is, and this is sort of partly based on my own journey of writing a book. I'm very curious about what unanswered questions you found yourself wishing you could answer uh, after sort of doing the step back, looking at all of the literature, synthesizing it for your book. What does it make you want to know? What kinds of questions are you hoping to answer in your research or hoping others will answer moving forward now that you've seen um, at a bird's eye view everything we really know about identity and, and um, the power of us? Yeah, so one thing that 
that, and I'll connect this, maybe even zoom out to the behavior change for good initiative, <laughs> is that one thing that I want to do in the next range, you know, next five or 10 years of my research, something that the center stand for, it's something that's, you know, embodied in your work. That one of the things that resonated when I was reading your book is applying these ideas at scale with real behavior. And I know we've debated like some, a lot of the studies in psychology are based on people's attitudes and self-reports. And that's often a really good first pass, but it's much more powerful when you can look at behavior and do it at scale. And I would say in the last five years, I've been moving more and more to real behavior, especially measuring like mass behavior online or in multiple countries. Um, but that's, I think the next wave is like putting these ideas to test um, in ways that can affect people and create behavior change uh, for good. Um, but in like a measurable way. So we can see like, how much can we reduce toxic behavior in a workplace? How much can we like change the norms to promote like healthy dissent so we can like avoid groupthink in some kind of measurable way. And so I think for me, that's the vision of the next five or 10 years that I'd love to do more. And I feel like the behavioral economics field, the behavioral science field has been really moving in that direction the last five years. And I, I just am really inspired by it, by these huge studies with real behavior. And I just think that's the future of, of the best science. And so I think that the stuff on groups needs to be taken there um, and put to the test and see where it's gonna make a positive change and maybe where it won't. Well, that is a very exciting way uh, to wrap, I think, because uh, hopefully it means we get to collaborate a lot. I yeah. would love that. Um, <laughs> and I was expecting you to say, you know, I, I'm thinking about this particular hypothesis, but I love that it's let's take it to scale. We have all these great ideas and so much knowledge we've built in the lab and, in, uh, you know, fMRI machines. And now let's go apply it and make the world a better place. Um, yay. And Jay, thank you so much for spending uh, your lunch 45 minutes with us. We um, we loved this. This was such a fun conversation. I loved the book, but I learned even more from having this dialogue with you. And I hope everyone else had as much fun as I did. Thank you both so much for having me. And I have to say, it's been uh, really touching to me just to be embraced by other authors, especially really successful authors by yourself. And I feel like there's this, this whole other identity I have now and these other groups of people. And they've been, the, the, actually maybe uh, the author world that I'm now in, is actually a really good example I was thinking of last night is like a, a group that's actually really supportive, unconditionally supportive, inclusive, uh, open and honest about what their struggles were and ways to help each other. And it's really good example of just like a great identity to have and, and the people who are modeling it, at least in the encounters I've had are, are really inspiring. I hope to pay it forward if there's future authors on this call. Um, when it's your turn, uh, let me know and I'll do what I can to offer advice or support. Thanks, Jay. Go read Power of Us. It's amazing. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.